to, uh, to think about God's being. And so our scripture reading, <clears throat> our sermon text to get us started is taken from Psalm chapter 89 and we'll, we'll read uh, verses 8 through 13 of Psalm chapter 89. As we read uh, God's word, remember that we do so as an act of worship. And so let's give a holy attention to it now. This is Psalm 89, picking up in verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. Amen. Please be seated. We started at the beginning of the year just uh, sort of tooling along, working our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith and uh, thinking about the, the 33 doctrines that are laid out there. We began by thinking about um, everything that we believe about the Bible. And uh, we've moved from that to thinking about everything that Scripture and nature teach us about who God, about who God is. And, and so as we get started tonight, I want to pause and just... Um, and just say a, a couple things here. Um, the, the Christian life can be it, it can be a it can be a, a life of ups and downs. I, I remember early in my in, when I was in college, and I believe the Lord really called me back to Himself, or called me to Himself, and um, filled me with a zeal for Him. There there were times where I would um, I would get on my knees and pray and. And I would just have this sense that my prayers were not getting past the ceiling. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, you know, you just wonder if maybe God hears you? And, and there are times where maybe, you're, maybe your love for the Lord just sort of, maybe it, uh, there's a smolder there and not, and not much more. You can relate to that um, Isaiah 42 passage where Jesus doesn't smother the smoldering wick and maybe Maybe there's just a little bit of light coming off that wick of your heart and, and just a little bit of smoke, and you're, you ask the Lord to, to fan that back to a flame. Um, well, what's something that you can do maybe to, to, be, to, to ask the Lord to rejuvenate you? Well, I would suggest to you that, that one of the things that you can do is, is just begin in a fresh way to think about who God is. And I'll pick up on a, just a little thing I told you to consider doing last week, which is if you remember in the, in the shorter catechism, it asks us the question, it says, who is God? And remember, it begins, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And then it gives us seven attributes in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, uh, goodness, and truth. And um, I skipped one there, but um, there are seven attributes 
And, and what I would encourage you to do is maybe get you a, get a, um, get a legal pad or, or just a, some kind of journal and, and put Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, Mon- Sunday through Saturday, and for each day of the week, a different one of God's attributes, one of those seven. And, and in your prayer time, for each of those days, meditate on one of those a- aspects of God's being. And then as you read your Bible, um, maybe start reading through the book of Job. I always, I'm always amazed at how in the book of Job there's just such a richness about who God is. And, and maybe you'll, you'll come across a verse that talks to you about God's being. And, and maybe you'll write that in your journal. Um, maybe you'll, you'll read a verse about God's holiness um, or, or His power. And so you'll write that in your journal. And, and you see what happens is over time, you're sort of retraining your, your mind. You're, you stop reading the Bible as a collection of moral stories that are teaching you this is what you're supposed to do. And you start reading it looking for how the Bible teaches you who God is. And as you're praying through these attributes and reading your Bible and, and trying to pay attention to them, that suddenly you might find that the Lord is, is sort of rekindling just a, a love for who He is. Without you. Without you. This is just who He is. And, and I think that he's, he's given us His Word so that we will look to it and we will end in doxology as we meditate on His, his power. So, again, we are, we're tiptoeing through the tulips. Um, we're, we're covering a lot of ground, and we're just sort of, remember, we're sort of walking through a botanical garden at a really rapid pace, and we're just sort of looking, and we're saying, okay, that's the name, that's the scientific name, take a picture, I like that, I want to come back to it. And that's sort of the way that we're going through God's attributes and, and what the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism has to say about them. So we are not being exhaustive by any measure. Tonight, um, as we finish out the first, or getting close to finishing out the first paragraph of of, um, chapter 2, I am taking, I'm borrowing from Bill and Ted their excellent adventure. Um, So we're beginning just remembering that God is most excellent. Uh, God is most excellent. Um, He is sovereign, He is good, and He is just. Those four things... Um, we should get through it in 45 or 50 minutes. I'm just kidding. Um, as we looked at Psalm chapter 89, one of the things that you know about the psalmist, both as you read David's psalms and the other psalms, the psalms of Korah, Moses' psalm, they had a passionate love for God. They loved Him. And even in their moments of, um, of fear, we find that their hearts are drawn to God's power. I remember, um, I think I was going to use this illustration later, but I'll go ahead and use it. um, When I was in in Boy Scouts, I worked on my God and Country medal. And um, uh, the pastor that I was meeting with, he said, all right, um, tell me something that makes you afraid. We're working through this workbook. And he said, tell me something that makes you afraid. And I mean, I couldn't think of anything, of course. But uh, no, I said the dark, Uh, you know, afraid of the dark, um, 
And he said, well, let me, uh, let, me, let me give you something to think about. When you're tempted to be afraid, let me give you something to think about. And he took me to Psalm 121. You know, in the psalmist there, he's, he's reflecting as, you know, I look up, I look to the hills. Here I am in the valley, and you've sensed this before. I'm in, and I look up, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I say, where's my help coming from, Lord? Uh, I've been on the waiting list for four months, waiting to get my surgery. And, you know, where's my, where's my help coming from? And the psalmist, he says, well, um, my help comes from the Lord. And, and he sort of starts preaching to himself, doesn't he? God doesn't sleep. God doesn't slumber. He is always watching me. And so he's reminding himself to take, to take heart um, in that moment. And, and so that's what we're thinking about tonight. I want you to remember that as we think about the fact that God, first of all, God is most excellent. Um, there, is none, there, there is none like him. There's nothing like him. No, no being that even compares to him. The, the larger catechism, one of the, the terms that it uses for him, first of all, is that he is almighty. Um, he is almighty. Um, when Moses was getting older, he was 99 years old, Genesis chapter 17. And of course, he and his wife, Sarah, are, uh, are, are thinking, okay, God's promised us a son. Obviously, that's not coming to pass because people just don't get pregnant anymore in their 90s. You know, maybe a few generations ago that would have happened, but it's just not possible anymore. And so uh, turn over to Genesis chapter 17. I want you to see something there. And, and I'll just note, as you're turning there, I'll note something for you. Uh, one of the things to pay attention to as you work through, especially the, the opening chapters of Scripture, is notice when you're reading them how the names of God progress. He, we start out as Elohim in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 we have the, the name Yahweh or Jehovah or Adonai. Um, in chapter 17, he reveals himself, we're going to see here, under a different name. For the first time, he's going to use the name Shaddai, Shaddai. Look with me at Genesis 17.1. When Abram was 99 years old, ripe, childbearing age, um, who's not prepared to stay up all night at 99? Uh, the Lord appeared to Abram. And said to him, and here's the, here it is, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And, and uh, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And, and it's as though the Lord is, um, he just anticipates, he, because he knows his people so well, he anticipates the doubts um, that Abram uh, is wrestling with on a daily basis. And so he comes to him and he simply says to him, I am God Almighty. This, um, this name for God, Shaddai, it, it occurs, think about this, it, um, it occurs 31 times in the book of Job. More than any other place. So, there's this whole reflection between 
Job, and as he goes through these discourses with his friends, over and over, God comes forth on the pages of Job as the Almighty. And it is depicting him as the one who, he, he, he can do all that he wants to do. In fact, in creation, we, we see just a, a minuscule of what God can do. When you look at the trees and the grass and the sunset and, and the fact that he holds all these things together, the laws of gravity and thermodynamics, th- this, is, this is just a, a, a fragment of what God can do. And he is pleased to display that in time and space by causing a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman to have a, a child. In Psalm chapter 91, one, it's a favorite for us. Remember that there the Almighty is the one under whose wings we rest. God is a powerful defender of His people. And so that as we get to the end of, of Scripture in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the four living creatures are there with their six wings full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is powerful. And He's not only powerful, but He is most wise. And we're going to go through these as we go through the catechism. It says He's most wise, He is most holy, He is most free, He is most absolute, and then in a minute it's going to say that He is most loving. And, and it's, as we try to describe who God is and His characteristics, remember that um, we simply come to the end of human language, tr- trying to capture the infinite, the eternal, the immense, the unchanging in our finite language with our finite minds. And so the best that we can sometimes come up with is, well, He is wise, but He is the most wise. In Romans chapter 16, verse 27, as Paul's closing out his epistle, he says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. And And as you think of God's wisdom, simply remember um, that God does everything at the right time in the right way. Um, Maybe as you pray and you're thinking about, okay, you've got that day where you're thinking about God's wisdom. And maybe maybe you're in the midst of uh, of some sort of... of, of trial or challenge or a conflict, and you, you need to know what to say. Remember that God knows the exact perfect words. He, he has them. And so when we pray and ask God for his wisdom, this is, show me what to do. Lead me in the right direction. I know that if you guide my steps, I will never falter. I will never fail. I can't make an error. And so we trust him to do that for us. Thomas Ridgely, a uh, a theologian, as he's thinking about the fact that God is most wise, that he knows all things, that nothing can be hidden from him, he, he gives us a few points of application, and I'll, I'll just do that here. Um, number one, remembering that God is most wise prevents hypocrisy. How is that? Well, because you know that what you do in secret 
really isn't secret, is it? He, he, he sees it. We, we saw that this morning, didn't we? You, even when you whisper under your breath and you're uh, complaining about what your mom and dad tell you to do, well, he, he hears that and he marks it. A second application, that it humbles us under a sense of sin. It's, it, God doesn't just weigh... He's not just knowledgeable of what you do, of the actions that everybody sees. He, he knows it all perfectly well. He knows the motions of your heart. Every desire. Every desire. And so it humbles us. It, it makes us realize that, you know, that we, we, we tend maybe to think of sin as sort of this deep. And then we, you actually realize, he, okay, he knows every conversation I've ever had. He knows every thought I've ever had. He knows all of my desires. He knows that time that those times that I I might obey my mom and dad, but I do it with a grumbling spirit. You see, and the level just gets sort of deeper and deeper. When we realize that the depth of God's wisdom, it humbles us under a sense of sin. But it also comforts us, doesn't it? None of your ways are hidden from him. There is no place that you can go where you are outside of the Lord's protection and wisdom and He is everywhere guiding your feet. And He hears your prayers. He's most holy. You remember that moment we mentioned it this morning when Isaiah is caught up to the throne room of God and there he is in the heavenly presence of God and His angels and they're crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. Um, couple of ways to think about this, and there are different men will define it in different ways, but uh, the scriptures seem to use holiness, one, to describe the fact that God is separate. He, he is just entirely distinct and separated from mankind. He, one of the ways that he's different from us now that we are sinful and under the effects of the fall is he's holy and we are not. And every one of his attributes is pervaded by his holiness. His love is holy and his justice is holy. But it also describes the fact that God is morally perfect. He is separated from sin. There is no impurity in him whatsoever at all. And all that he wills to do is perfectly holy. John Owen wrote this, um, sometimes the holiness of God is described as a fire, and, and that's why when you get, look through the Old Testament ceremonies, they would take animals and they, they burn or consecrate them on the altar. They're offering them up in a holy fire. John Owen says, this fiery holiness streams from his throne. He's reflecting on Daniel 7.10. You can jot that down. This fiery holiness streams from his throne and would quickly consume the whole creation as now under the curse and sin were it not for the interposing of Jesus Christ. All, you see how all of these attributes even ultimately lead us to a, a meditation upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We can't think of God's holiness without thinking of how we need Christ. He's most holy. He is most free. I love Psalm 115, verse 3. <clears throat> Our God is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. That, that's, 
That's a whole prayer time to think about in and of itself, isn't it? God is free. He created the universe because He wanted to. Not because there was any need in Him. You see the difference? It's not because He was lonely and needed some companionship. But God is free, so He created and He created you because He wanted to. There was no compulsion. He created you as an act of His most free will. And He loves you because He wants to. Nothing compels His love for you except His own free will. Paul reflects on this in 1 Timothy 1.17. We go back to this over and over. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the King of the ages. The only God. He is most free. He does as He pleases. And He is most absolute. Most absolute. Um, Moses, yet another shepherd whom the Lord called to be a minister, um, was walking through the wilderness one day. And um, out of the corner of his eye, he spots this bush that's burning, but the bush isn't burned up. And, and thinking in his mind, he says, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of turn and look over here and see what's going on. And, he, and then he walks over. And the Lord says to him, remember, you're standing on holy ground, and he gives him this commission, you go and set my people free. And Moses said, well, one thing, um, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? God said to Moses, this is Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It, this is a, maybe one of the most difficult passages in the Hebrew Old Testament to translate. There are lots of different ideas of what, of what in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, I am who I am, what that actually means. But I, I think perhaps it's depicted in the bush. That there you have a flame that burns and it requires no fuel. It simply is. God is most absolute. He is who He is. And so He's not just the most excellent, but He is also sovereign. And uh, I, I don't, many of you may be like me and sort of grew up in, in, a, in a traditional um, non-reformed background and you, you sort of came to embrace God's sovereignty later in life. That, that was true of me. I remember the summer of 2003 and, and just in the process of reading and listening to the radio, uh, some sermons there, how the Lord brought me to understand His sovereignty. And, and one of them was Psalm 115, verse 3. The Lord sits in the heavens and He does as He pleases. We read in Ephesians 1.11, In Him... We have an, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. Now listen to this. Who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Why is our current president the president? 
Because God decreed it. Why is our current Congress our current Congress? Because God decreed it. Why is there conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Because God decreed it. Why are you sitting here tonight? Because God decreed you to be here. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And so the catechism, it goes on and says, look, when, when we think about the will of God, one, it is absolute. Remember, He is most absolute. He does as He pleases. He's not dependent on anybody. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He's, he doesn't require food. There's no one who sustains Him. It simply is. And His will is absolute. What God wills is final. It's final. His will is unchangeable. And His will is righteous. And so let me just give you a simple application there. God has promised you some very major things, hasn't He? He has promised you that when you confess your sins, He forgives you of your sins. That when you confess Christ as Lord, that when you come in faith, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to your account and He takes all of your iniquities and places them on the cross of Jesus Christ so that there's no punishment left. And He's promised you these things, do you see? But if God's will is not absolute, if it is a changeable will, if He can change His mind, and if He is not righteous, then His promises are meaningless. A.W. Pink writes this, he says, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. In, in just a few weeks, we're going to get into Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to start going through the parables of the kingdom. And, and one of the ways that I would, want, I, I would want to encourage you tonight as you think about God's sovereign will, that there, there, are, there are times in life, and, and this may be one of them, where it, it seems like God's, like the tide is going out on God's kingdom. And you think, well, there's so few people who are faithful to Christ anymore. So few. So few who, who seem to have a genuine love for Him. His kingdom seems so weak. Um, and we pray, Lord, let Your kingdom come. Bring revival. Bring, draw hearts to Yourself. We want to see our community restored and all of these things. What, what we, the, the bedrock for us is that God does as He pleases. It's not as though God wants His kingdom to go forward and something is preventing that. Nothing can stop it. He's motivated by His own glory. Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God is, God is sovereign. And I, I hope that you will take time to meditate on that. Because when, when you embrace heart and soul, the fact that God is sovereign, 
I will, I will say to you that it is, Charles Spurgeon described it as his second new birth because it brings such a freedom that you realize that, that in evangelism, if, if men aren't listening to you, it's not, it's not because of you. If, if men aren't being converted and you are being faithful, but men are not being converted, it's not your failure. You just be faithful. You keep on praying. You keep on sharing. You keep on ministering. And God in His time will, in His sovereignty, when He pleases, change the heart. But a sovereign God is maybe not much good to us if He isn't also good. God might be sovereign and He can do all that He pleases and He sits in the heavens and He looks down upon us and He doesn't need anything from us, but what if God were not good? And remember that historically as we think about God's goodness, this is, this is sort of the, the, um, the top category where mercy and His love and His grace and His benevolence, His kindness toward you, all of that is defined under His goodness. God is a good God. I, I love this. Moses, you remember, he's, he had this, this moment. He comes down from the mountain and he sees the, the Israelites' wickedness and they're committing idolatry and fornication and they've got this golden calf. And remember what Moses did. He took those two tablets and he threw them and they shattered on the ground. He was angry. And it was a righteous anger. And, and eventually God, God said, I will make two new tablets for you. And Moses, he, he prayed a prayer. Do you remember what he asked the Lord? He, he said, show me your glory. And so the Lord took Moses and he put him up in the cleft of the rock and he covered him with his hand. And as the presence of the Lord passed by, listen to what God said. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I would... I just ask you to note there that when God passed by, when He passed by Moses, what did, he, what did He emphasize to Moses in that moment where perhaps Moses is still thinking about what Israel did and maybe there's a little bit of, of wrath rattling around in his heart. God reminded Moses, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is what he would have you remember as well. He delights to show steadfast love to thousands. He delights to forgive iniquities. He, he delights in it because it exalts his son. He is most loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. 
He is abundant in goodness and truth. And you know what else? He loves to reward those who diligently seek Him. And do you know what the reward is? It's Him. Hebrews 11.6, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. He's inviting you every moment of every day, every day <clears throat> to set your heart on Him, to think about His love, to think about His forgiveness, to think about His mercy, to think about His absolute free will, and to find comfort. And then lastly, let's just notice fourthly, God is most excellent, God is sovereign, God is good, and God is, He is also just. <clears throat> Listen to what Nehemiah has to say in chapter 9, verses 32 to 33. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, you see there he's perhaps reflecting on um, what God said to Moses. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. You see what Nehemiah is saying there? Um, we deserve this. The other day, just having a front porch chat with one of my children, and we're talking about some of the difficulties of a present season of life, and, and saying, well, how do, you know, how do you endure something like this? How do you go on? And just, it seems like you should, you should just wilt under what's, what's happening here. And, and, and I'll just share it with you. For, for me personally, one of the things that is so sustaining is just remember that there is nothing in my life that no hardship in my life that in a real sense I don't deserve. If you get to the point where you realize that your low points in life are really not as low as you deserve to sink, I will say that there is a real contentment in that. Because then you suddenly see that even in these, even in these measured out afflictions, there, there is the mercy of God. He hates sin. He hates sin. And remember that sometimes we, we say, well, God, God we, we, we hate sin, but we love the sinner. And, and I think the balancing, the balancing statement there is that God doesn't punish sin in hell. He punishes people. Psalm 5, he says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God, every moment, is filled with wrath against the wicked. This is essential to the knowledge of the gospel because we must recognize that we rightly deserve God's wrath and hatred or we will not truly appreciate what He has done for us in Christ Jesus who endured that wrath, that hatred for us. Paul, Paul 
um, in Romans chapter 11, he transitions. He, he's been talking about the nature of the gospel, and then he transitions and he talks to us about some, some application. But listen to how he closes, as he's thinking about this plan of God and his wisdom and, and what he did for Abraham and how, how all Israel will be saved and the, the mystery of the one tree and us wild Gentiles being grafted into this one tree and, and, and the amazing things that God has done. And, and Paul is saying, you know, even, even as I come to this concluding point, I realize that, that I haven't fully done justice to, to what we ought to say. And he, he simply says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here's the point. When you meditate on these things, if you go back and you look at the larger catechism and you try to take these things in and you're reading your scripture and you're journaling, the point is doxology. And you need to go back and keep studying it until your heart gets to that point of praise. Pondering God's being should end in worship. And when you take time to meditate on who God is, you cannot help but, like Job, Put your hand over your mouth and just marvel. If your worship is cold and lifeless, set your heart on who God is. Meditate on Him in a fresh way. Because as Jesus said, this is eternal life. To know you. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we haven't even scratched the surface we have maybe identified the surface and, and sort of looked at it for a minute. And, um, but Father, we thank you. We, we first of all recognize that if we have any right conception of who you are, um, it's because your Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. We, we know that the knowledge of who you are is too lofty for us. You are removed from us by an infinite degree. And unless you come down to us, we cannot understand. So Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight that, that, that we'd go forth from here looking at your word in a new way, looking for the, the breadcrumbs that show us who you are, and then taking the time to worship you according to what you reveal. And we, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.